Welcome to World War I Centennial News. It's about World War I news 100 years ago this week, and it's about World War I news now. News and updates about the centennial and the commemoration. World War I Centennial News is brought to you by the U.S. World War I Centennial Commission and the Pritzker Military Museum and Library. Today is July 12, 2017, and I'm Teo Mayer, the Chief Technologist for the World War I Centennial Commission and your host. We open today with an announcement from Dan Dayton, the Commission's Executive Director. Teo, I'm saddened to have to report today the passing of James Nutter, Sr., Mr. Nutter was one of the original 12 commissioners on the World War I Centennial Commission. Commission Chair Rob D'Alessandro said, It's with great sadness that I report the death of Jim Nutter. Jim was an original member of the commission and our first donor, graciously hosting us in Kansas City after our first meeting and really providing the seed money to hire our first staff members and get us started. Jim was always there for the World War I Centennial Commission. He was, in Kansas City, a pioneer in mortgage lending. He founded his first mortgage lending company in 1951, and the Army veteran and Midwest native wanted to help his friends purchase their own homes with the comfort of personal touch customer service, and indeed he did. He was always generous, gracious, and helpful to me and everyone on the commission, and he will be sorely missed. We've moved back in time 100 years ago. Today, our Wayback Machine also crosses the Atlantic to view a crisis that arises in Poland, known as the Polish Oath Crisis. Germany's been hoping to use Poland's extensive manpower to help them fight the war. Joseph Pilsudski, the leader of the Polish Legion, has grown disillusioned with the central power that Germany set up in Poland under the 1916 promise of independence after the war, if Poland sides with her. By now, the revolution in Russia has removed the hated Tsar and brought in a government that will probably support Polish independence. Plus, America's entry into the war makes it even more likely that any Allied-enforced peace will recognize full Polish self-determination instead of a nominal independence as a German vassal. Joseph Pilsudski sees his chance to make his objections known this week when the German-installed governor of Poland requires that all soldiers in the Polish Legion swear a loyalty oath to the future king of Poland and to be loyal brothers-in-arms to the Germans and the Austrians. On July 8th, Pilsudski resigns from the provisional government and instructs his men of the Polish Legion not to swear the oath. The next day on July 9th, most of them agree, and publicly refuse to do so, many throwing down their weapons in protest. This does not go over well. Polish-Austrian subjects in the legions are forcibly drafted back into the Austrian army and sent off to the Italian front. Russian and German subjects who refuse to swear the oath are treated as enemy combatants and are arrested as prisoners of war. Joseph Pilsudski himself is arrested by the Germans and remains in captivity until the final weeks of the war. To help us understand the story of Poland and Polish-Americans before and during World War I, we have a special guest with us today. Jan Loris is a historian and the former director of the Polish Museum of America in Chicago. Welcome, Jan. Dzień dobry. 
Jan, to begin with, can you put Poland as an independent people, nation, and culture during this time into context for us? Yes. Uh, the time of World War One finds Poland that had been partitioned for 123 years amongst the Germans, the Austrians, and the Russians. So as long as those three countries cooperated, there was no chance of Polish independence. So World War One, with Germany and Austria on one side fighting against Russia, which is allied with France and England and Italy, and then later the United States, in an interesting position. Because uh, the Poles are assuming that if one side wins uh, on Polish territories, that they will create a Polish state from the lands of the losers. What nobody expected to happen was the fact that Russia eventually breaks out into revolution. The Germans and the Austrians on the Eastern Front advance and uh, occupy historic Polish lands. And then a year later, in 1918, the Germans and the Austrians themselves are defeated by the Allies. And there's even a small Polish army that was organized by the French recruited here in the United States, trained in Canada, and fought in France that are on the side of the Allies. So that's the topic that I'm covering, is a Polish-American contribution to the uh, Allied victory in uh, World War One. Now, Jan, there was a large immigrant wave of Poles to the U.S. at the turn of the century. Well, what drove that? Uh, well, let's see. I think uh, historians and sociologists divide uh, the reasons that immigrants come to various countries into two large groups, push and pull. Push are those factors that are forcing people out of one country or region, and pull are those factors that bring people to a different country or region. So as I mentioned in the first thing, there was no Poland. Poles in their own country or in their own lands, let's call it that, their prospects are not that uh, very good. For instance, the Russians are Orthodox, uh, the Germans that are running Poland are Protestant, so Poles who predominantly were Roman Catholic, although there was also a large Jewish minority, don't have very good prospects for advancement. So it's the old uh, you know, economic opportunity. But even more importantly is the fact that uh, in Polish tradition, unlike English tradition, where the oldest son inherits the lands, the lands are divided amongst all the male heirs. And of course, each generation you get more kids, less land. So there's a land shortage. And of course, the three partitioning powers have military conscription. And especially it's rather onerous in the Russian partition because young men are sent away to uh, serve in the military for 20 years. So if you're 18, it's a good reason to get out of Dodge. Those are basically the push factors. The pull factors here in the United States is the fact that the United States does have a lot of land to be developed. So people are coming over and hoping to get the, get the lands and to uh, establish what they couldn't do there. Also, despite sometimes anti-immigrant feeling in the United States, which does run in waves, not only Poles, but Czechs, Finns, and Latvians, and Norwegians, Slovaks, Slovenes can come to the United States and establish their own community. The reason I, I mention those countries is because they didn't exist 
as uh, as independent countries prior to World War One. The Finns were were part of the Russian uh, Empire or the Tsarist Empire. The Norwegians were part of Swedish Empire, and we tend not to think of Sweden as imperials. If we think of Sweden at all, it's usually four-letter words like IKEA and ABBA. But if you're dominating somebody's country and fate, you're an imperialistic power, which Sweden was for a short time. So these people can finally come over. I'm sure most of the people who have listened to Garrison Keillor and talking about the bachelor Norwegian farmers and the sons of Canute. So people tried to do that. You'd go to any large city, you'd have a little Poland, a little Prague, a little Finlandia. All these ethnic groups tried to reestablish what they couldn't do back in Europe. So those push and pull factors uh, vary. After Poland is established, uh, it becomes less political, more economic. So why did so many immigrants volunteer to go back over and fight, especially since they might have been up against their own countrymen? Well, it wouldn't be fighting their own countrymen. It would be fighting against the Austrians, against the Germans, against the uh, Russians. So that now the tragedy of World War One for the Poles in Polish lands is that in each country the reservists were called up, and you had battles where the Russian army, with regiments made up of Polish reservists, fought against the Austrian army, which had regiments made up of Polish reservists, and they fought against each other. That was the tragedy in Poland. But it's not that they just, it was not a civil war. It was, they were just caught up in World War One on the Eastern Front. And eventually that happened when the Polish army in France uh, became large enough that they found Poles who had been uh, drafted into the German army, because they, of course they were German citizens uh, uh, and conscripted into the German army, fighting against Poles that were in the uh, 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 French army or under, uh, under French command. So that's of, of, of a partitioned land where you have that. So it was not a civil war in the sense that the Poles voluntarily or willingly uh, fought against each other. It's just uh, the fact that they were in, in those separate armies. Jan, thank you for taking time to join us today. Thank you. Bye-bye. That was Jan Loris, historian and former director of the Polish Museum of America in Chicago, talking to us about the Polish experience in World War I. It's the week of July 8th to July 14th, 1917. As we explore the pages of the official bulletin, the administration's daily war gazette published by the order of the president by his propaganda chief, George Creel. The theme for this week that we're focusing on is ships, shipping, and shipbuilding. There are literally a dozen stories about the war on the waves. Here's a few of them, woven into an interesting picture of a whole industry that's simply being taken over by the federal government. Dateline, July 10, 1917. President orders 87 German vessels taken over for the United States. In May of 1917, President Wilson approves a joint resolution of Congress that allows the United States to take possession of any ships in its national or territorial ports, which are owned in whole or in part by companies, citizens, or subjects of any nation with which the United States is at war. 
With that as a basis, President Wilson orders that 87 such ships be appropriated by the U.S. government to be retrofitted and put back into service for America. Now, the cash value of these 87 ships is not given, but with a war planned to be prosecuted an ocean away, these opening spoils of war are a real boon. Those 87 ships easily represent one or more years of U.S. shipbuilding capacity. Now they belong to the federal government just with a stroke of a pen. Speaking of building ships, another headline this week reads, Headline, Expansion of the U.S. Navy Yards being planned so that 16 war vessels may be built at one time. Secretary of the Navy Daniel stated today, the shipbuilding facilities of the United States Navy Yards are being expanded so that eventually 16 war vessels may be built at one time, while fully 32 may be in the course of construction. This number does not include submarines and submarine chasers. All this work at the Navy Yards is being rushed, with men working overtime and in shifts, and in most cases, bonuses are being offered for completion of work ahead of schedule. Headline, President Authorizes the Requisition of Shipping. Expanding on a law that Wilson gets Congress to pass, giving him great authority over the maritime industries, President Wilson flips that control over to another powerful industry board he sets up, the United States Shipping Board Emergency Fleet Corporation. In this article, Wilson states, I hereby direct that the United States Shipping Board Emergency Fleet Corporation shall have and exercise all power and authority vested in me in said section of said act, insofar as applicable to and in furtherance of the construction of vessels, the purchase or requisitioning of vessels in process of construction, whether on the ways or already launched, or of contracts for the construction of such vessels, and the completion thereof, and all power and authority applicable to and in furtherance of the production, purchase, and requisition of materials for ship construction. Now, speaking of materials, that was also addressed this very same week. Dateline, July 12, 1917. Headline, Entire Output of Steel Available for War Needs. The story reads, At the conference this morning between the Committee of the American Iron and Steel Institute, the Secretary of War, the Secretary of the Navy, the Chairman of the Shipping Board, and others, further discussion was had about the prospective demand upon the steel industry for supplies of various steel products for carrying on the war. The steelmen repeated their assurance that their entire product would be available for the need, and that they were doing everything possible to stimulate an increased production and speed deliveries. The price to be paid for the iron and steel products was left to be determined after an inquiry by the Federal Trade Commission is completed, with the understanding that the price, when fixed, would ensure a reasonable profit and be made with reference to the expanding needs of this vital and fundamental industry. The government is not only after the control of the resources, but also of the labor. Dateline, Friday, July 18, 1917. Headline, Labor for Navy Yards Being Supplied by Civil Service. This story talks about how the labor for the expansion is being supported by the government's Civil Service Commission. It goes on to state, 
The Civil Service Commission is an employment agency on a large scale, but it goes beyond the function of the ordinary employment agency in that it tests the fitness of every person it certifies as eligible. Equipped as it is with 3,000 representative agencies, that is, local boards of examiners, situated in every part of the country, it is eminently qualified to perform the important service of bringing the man and the job together so far as the needs of the government are concerned. Then, on Friday, the official bulletin reveals the big story. The to me, jaw-dropping announcement that the administration's going to federalize the entire shipbuilding industry. Really? Dateline, Friday, July 18, 1917. Headline, Statement about the program to federalize shipyards. The article goes on to read, Because of their varied contracts for shipbuilding, the yards cannot carry out this program without the help of the government. It has therefore been decided that the shipbuilding industry of the nation shall be federalized. All steel merchant ships now on the building berths will be forthwith requisitioned by the United States, and each yard will proceed to complete such ships under the direction of the General Manager of the United States Shipping Board Emergency Fleet Corporation, and will take on new work only with his consent. Okay, so there's a bunch of other headlines that we're just going to skip because we need to review this. Remember, these headlines are just for articles from this week. First, Wilson expands the U.S. maritime fleet by nearly 90 ships by appropriating all vessels in the U.S. and U.S. territorial ports if connected to any nation, company, or citizen of a nation that we've declared war on. Next, Secretary of the Navy Daniels declares that we're pushing the U.S. Navy shipyards to double their production capacity. Then, Wilson officially empowers an organization called the United States Shipping Board Emergency Fleet Corporation with general control over the whole industry, followed by the steel manufacturers gathering in Washington to agree that their entire output and industry is now at the beck and call of the U.S. government, at a price to be negotiated. The labor force and hiring for Navy shipyards is now under the control of the government's Civil Service Commission. And all of this is topped off on Friday with the announcement that the entire shipbuilding industry, Navy and civil, is being federalized and put under the control of the United States Shipping Board Emergency Fleet Corporation. The bottom line seems to be that 100 years ago this week, the United States government literally takes over and federalizes the entire U.S. shipbuilding industry, including materials, supply, and labor. That's a shocking and almost inconceivable turn of events for a free enterprise, democratic, capitalist nation. Yet, it's another part of the war that changed the world. Our next guest is Mike Schuster, former NPR correspondent and curator of the Great War Project blog. Now, we've explored Poland, shipbuilding in the U.S., and now Mike takes us to the U.K., where more soldiers are being freed up to fight by women. Welcome, Mike. Thanks, Teo. Yes, that's the story this week, and the headlines read, Women at War. A British battalion of women, in uniform but not in combat, frees more men for the front lines. This is special to the Great War Project. Britain brings more women into the war at this moment when the government agrees to the formation of a Women's Auxiliary Army Corps. This was the first time, reports historian Martin Gilbert, 
that women were to be put into uniform and sent to France to serve as clerks, telephonists, waitresses, cooks, and as instructors in the use of gas masks. In the British Army, there is the tradition that only men could become officers, so women in charge of their units are given the rank of controller or administrator. The principle underlining the establishment of the Corps was the need to release soldiers who were doing menial jobs in Britain and France for active service at the front. Of course, women are already working in the war effort in enormous numbers in munitions factories across Britain. The patriotic call is as strong as it is for the men of Britain, even though long hours, acrid fumes, and low pay characterize the conditions that women are working in. The appeal to them is powerful. The situation is serious. Women must help save it. So goes one of the banners appealing to women to join the war. At Gretna in Scotland, writes Gilbert, 11,000 women were employed in the National Cordite Factory. Women played an essential role in providing the necessary munitions of the war. But the dangers were ever-present. Women working with the explosive TNT were referred to as canaries because of the yellow discoloration of the skin, a symptom of TNT poisoning. Many women died of various ailments and from explosions. In just one single incident, scores of women were killed in an explosion at Silverton in East London when an accidental fire ignited 50 tons of TNT devastating a square mile of London's East End. This episode according to historian Gilbert caused more destruction than all the First World War air raids on the capital combined. The factory happened to be owned by a company with a German name. As a result Gilbert reports there was an intensification of xenophobia a result of the German origins of the owners. In France, too, there was a similar increase of the production of war munitions, also involving women workers, thanks in part, writes war historian John Keegan, to the mobilization of women for factory work. The output of explosives in France had grown sixfold since the beginning of the war. There are also developments involving women on the Eastern Front. Among the Russian units still in action was the 300-strong women's battalion known as the Women's Battalion of Death. Some of them saw combat. According to the popular Russian accounts at the time, reports Gilbert, the battalion captured 2,000 Austrian prisoners. One British nurse wrote of this women's battalion in honor of those women volunteers. It was recorded that they did go into the attack. They did go over the top, but not all of them. Some remained in the trenches. Some suffered shell shock, desperation, and paralyzing fear. And that's just some of the stories from the Great War Project and this moment in the war 100 years ago. Thank you, Mike. That was Mike Schuster from the Great War Project blog. Now, if you'd like to watch videos about World War I 100 years ago this week, from a more European perspective, go visit our friends at the Great War Channel on YouTube. This week's new episodes cover The Destroyed Villages of France. Turmoil in the Reichstag, the Kerensky Offensive, and German defenses in the Meuse-Argonne region. Now, this story is a preview of a region that will become a major battleground for American troops in the near future. The link is in the podcast notes or search for The Great War on YouTube. They're back. This week, Richard Rubin and Jonathan Bratton, the storyteller and the historian, talk about the many Americans who served under other flags prior to the U.S. entry into World War I. Although the United States did not enter World War I until April 6, 1917, 
There were already untold numbers of Americans serving with the Canadian, French, and British armies by that time. And, you know, you have to wonder, they must have entered each for different reasons. A lot of the Canadians would have been Americans from perhaps northern New England or northern, uh, the northern Midwest, Michigan, Wisconsin, who had roots in Canada, perhaps had even been born in Canada themselves and felt an obligation still to that country. Yeah, you've got this really weird sort of mix of people who are going to go over in 1415-16 before the American involvement. And they're going to be either, uh, as you said, the, the Canadians, uh, Canadian-Americans. Of course, the border at the time was pretty porous. Mm -hmm. It was not what you consider a strict border that we would uh, today. In fact, here in Maine, the St. John River Valley was all sort of one between the U.S. And, and Canada. And a lot of families shared that same heritage across the border. But if you look at the Americans that were going into the British or French service, I think there you've got less of the family connection that you would see with the Canadians. For the British, more of the uh, love of England mm -hmm. and the duty sort of... You, you, know, you get the feeling that a lot of them were sort of upper-class guys who yeah. wanted to go back. And well, I think in both cases you had... Anglophilia and Francophilia at work. Uh, but with the Anglophilia, I think it was more a case of, well, this is the mother country. Right. And with Francophilia, I think, first of all, there was a great fondness for France and French culture, but also there was a sense that France were the real victims in this right. war. I mean, there was no fighting taking place on British soil right. in the First World One, but uh, in the First World War. But as early as 1914, 1915, you have American war correspondents and even the American novelist Edith Wharton going over to France and writing uh, tremendously sympathetic accounts of the suffering of the French people under uh, the German invasion. And I think that swayed a lot of Americans into going over. Right, and I think you also get a large group of Americans who are going over in the French service to serve as non-combatants, but on the front lines, as ambulance drivers and litter carriers and uh, in the hospitals. And their primary devotion was sort of to help the cause of democracy, so to speak, because they actually saw it. Um, we, we can look at, at Wilson's declaration that the U.S. entrance into World War I was a war to make the world safe for democracy. I think they truly believed that. Mm -hmm. And they believed that from a um, very early time, as opposed to uh, the rest of the U.S., which was still sort of torn between, you know, will, they, will we or won't we? What side are we really on? <clears throat> you know, I think that uh, there are a couple of things at work here. First of all, this was a very idealistic time much more so, I think, than today. And I mean that literally. This was a time where people really gave a lot of weight to both ideals and ideas. Uh, and add to that the fact that American citizens were being subjected already by early 1915 to a very steady diet of, let's be frank, mm. propaganda oh, yeah. in American newspapers uh, depicting the horrors of war and the atrocities being wrought upon innocent civilians by uh, the German barbarians. 
uh, quote unquote. And that moved a lot of people uh, to go over there, which, by the way, was no small thing. I mean, America was officially neutral. People who went off to fight for one of the combatants were technically committing a crime. Right. Officially, according to American law, these Americans were committing a crime by going overseas to serve in another country's army in a conflict in which we were officially neutral. So it was really no small thing for them to do this, although to my knowledge, no one was ever punished for having done so. That was the storyteller Richard Rubin and the historian Jonathan Bratton talking about Americans in World War I before America's official entry into the war. A monthly full one-hour journey with these two great raconteurs is now available as a podcast on iTunes. Search for Storyteller and Historian in the iTunes podcast section. We've moved forward in time into the present with World War I Centennial News Now. News about the centennial and the commemoration. As we mentioned last week, and as you may have heard in the news by now, on July 14, 2017, U.S. President Trump and French President Macron will both honor the long and special bond between France and the U.S. during a Bastille Day parade in Paris that remembers American troops arriving in France 100 years ago. We'll gather the videos and pictures for you and post them on our social media platforms, on Facebook at WW1Centennial and on Instagram at WW1CC. The Commission sees the common recognition of the centennial by the leadership of both countries as a really significant moment in the centennial commemoration of the war that changed the world. Let's talk about young folks. This week we want to introduce you to a new collaboration we're very excited about, the 4-H Club and its Junior Master Gardener Program. This is an international youth gardening program that engages children in hands-on group and individual learning experiences that develop an appreciation for the environment and gardening, cultivating both the ground and the mind. In commemoration of the centennial of World War I, the junior master gardeners are going to work with the World War I Centennial Commission on a poppy program. We're really excited about this, and it's a great initiative that will extend the conversation and awareness about the war that changed the world to the kids. With us today is Lisa Whittlesey, Director of the International Junior Master Gardener Program. Lisa, it's really good to have you with us. Oh, it is so great to be here today and be able to, to share with you a little bit about the Junior Master Gardener Program and this upcoming opportunity to partner with the World War I Centennial Commission. Thanks, Lisa. So, Lisa, I have to start by telling you that I really like your website at jmgkids.us. It's green and happy and really fun. So let's start with the JMG program itself. Tell us more about it, please. Sure, I'd be happy to. Our uh, program is really about growing good kids, and so our mission is to ignite a passion in children for learning, uh, for success, for being involved in community service through their gardening experiences. 
We reach about a million children each year um, in direct programming. A lot of that is done through our school networks, probably about 70% of our programs or school programs, either public, private, or homeschool groups, and then the remainder in some sort of community-based club or even through partnerships with Botanic Gardens and Arboretum through their educational programming and outreach for children. Lisa, how does the JMG Poppy program work? Well, for us, the the Poppy Project is something we are so excited about. For our kids to get certification, they have to do learning experiences that are in the curricula. They have to do career exploration or life skills activities. But more importantly, they're required to do community service projects in their community. And the Poppy Project really ties so closely to that community service component. It allows children to learn about the significance of World War One, but also to be involved in community service and citizenship programs that honors veterans and involves them to be involved locally um, in outreach and educational opportunities. So one of the ways that, that we are promoting this project is we have a link directly on our website, jmgkids.us forward slash poppy and groups um, will have the opportunity to receive kits from the World War I Commission that they can either distribute or sell in their community. And that really is twofold. It helps them to support their local JMG groups and efforts that they may be doing in their community. But more importantly, it allows those children to be a part of building that National World War I Memorial in Washington, D.C. So uh, we have opportunities for for kids to participate starting now, and then we're having a real big push from September 5th through October 20th, and are allowing groups and schools to have kids participate. There's details on our website on how they can distribute and sell those packets. The exciting thing is we have a way to recognize those outstanding groups that really distribute the most seeds, and they're going to be invited to be a part of the groundbreaking of the National World War I Memorial in Washington, D.C. So there's a lot of buzz, a lot of excitement, and a lot of enthusiasm for this project, and we look forward to sharing it through our national network and through our cooperative extension partnerships and collaborators to really raise awareness not only for the commission, but for the work that our children are doing in the local community. Well, we're here at the commission are equally excited. It's such a great collaboration between the organizations, all in the interest of helping kids and everyone understand more about what is often referred to as the forgotten war. These kids haven't forgotten it, they've just never learned about it. That's exactly right. And one of the things that we really try to do is to empower teachers that are working in schools to have resources to help them to enrich activities in the classroom. And on this website that we have for the Poppy Project, there's a whole lot of details that are links and support content for teachers and other youth educators to be able to use to educate our children about uh, World War One and the significance of that war and some of the past history that the 4-H program has had as it relates to the World War One activities and efforts. So a lot of support and resources available for teachers and youth leaders that might want to participate in this project because not only do we see this as a way for the kids to be involved in citizenship and community service projects but also that learning component. Thank you, Lisa.
Thank you. That was Lisa Whittlesey, the director of the International Junior Master Gardeners Program, introducing us to their new World War I poppy program. We'll be talking more about this in the coming weeks, and we're setting up a special page for the program at www.cc.org jmp. We put a link to that and to the Junior Master Gardener website in the podcast notes. From the U.S. National World War I Centennial Events Register at www.cc.org events, here's our upcoming event pick of the week. We mentioned this in passing last week, but if you're in the Big Apple, go to the Museum of the City of New York in Manhattan and see their new Posters and Patriotism exhibit, featuring the work of many New York artists and illustrators that were enlisted to create posters, flyers, magazine art, sheet music covers, and other mass-produced images to stir the American public to wartime loyalty, duty, and sacrifice. Besides finding this in the National Events Register at www.cc.org events, there's also an interview with the show curator Donald Albrecht, where he discusses some of his favorite pieces from the show, including the famous James Montgomery Flag's Uncle Sam Wants You poster. We put links to the event and to the article in the podcast notes. Now for our updates from the states. We're going to start with a new program from the Beehive State, Utah. An exciting new opportunity for grants has launched in the state of Utah. The Utah Department of Veterans and Military Affairs and the Division of State History are offering grants for World War I-related research, commemorative events, as well as the cleaning and restoration of memorials around the state. The funding ranges from $500 to $1,500 for events and research and up to $5,000 for cleaning and restoration of World War I memorials. This is a great extension for the 100 Cities, 100 Memorials program if you're in the state of Utah. Gary Harder, Executive Director of the Veteran and Military Affairs Department, states, Even 100 years after it occurred, the impact of World War I is still being felt today. He continues with, These grants will assist in allowing the war's significance to be remembered and those who fought in it to be honored. Learn more about this great program by following the link in the podcast notes. In our international report this week, we head to Birmingham, England, where the They Also Served Research Project recently held a remembrance service at the New Testament Church of God with guest speaker Rev. Rose Hudson Wilkins, Chaplain to Her Majesty the Queen. Dr. Joe Aldred from Churches Together in England helped to organize the event. Dr. Aldred said, There's something about living in a diaspora that means that the majority narrative tends to tell the story of the majority community. And in that regard, the participation of African and Caribbean people from Britain's colonies during World War I isn't an exception. Dr. Aldred poses an important question. Why are we not represented when it comes time for the commemoration? Now, they're not the first to bring up the issue of overlooked groups that served in the war. Dr. Sashi Tharoor, author of 15 books, former Minister of the State of India, and former Undersecretary General of the United Nations, has spoken about this oversight as well. Here's a clip of an interview with Sky News earlier this year. 
We just celebrated the centenary or commemorated the centenary of the First World War in these last few years. It's still going on, really, till 2018. Do you know that an, a million Indians fought under arms for the British side? Do you know it was largely Indian soldiers that stopped the German advance at Ypres at the beginning of the war? Do you know that India supplied pack animals, food, clothing, rations, even rail lines ripped out of the ground in India and sent off to aid the war effort? And that the total contribution of Indians in, 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 in cash and kind is estimated in today's money at about 80 billion pounds sterling? I'm quite sure you don't know that because the British don't tell you that. It's a great triumph for British arms, but India has been forgotten. I drove past a statue in London to animals that participated in the war. There is no statue to the Indians who've done this for Britain. It's now recognized that over 2 million African and 16,000 Caribbeans, not to mention countless black Britons that joined the British regiments, served during the war. A war that's often viewed as a white man's war. But that was not really truly the global picture. Learn more about They Also Serve by visiting the project website, where you can view photos, follow the project's upcoming events, and learn about individuals that served. Follow the links in the podcast notes. For our Spotlight in the Media segment, we wanted to update you on the story we ran last week about the Star-Spangled Banner and its World War I connection to sporting events. It was the World War I Centennial Commission's public affairs team that sourced the original story, and as it turns out, with Sports Illustrated pushing out a parallel piece. So, the whole thing really took off last week and got picked up by media outlets all across the country, including ABC, the Chicago Tribune, the Sacramento Bee, Columbus Dispatch, Tucson, Arizona Star, and a bunch of others all carried the story of the National Anthem and the World Series game of 1918. You know, one of our key goals is to inspire a national conversation about World War I, and we love it when these stories about World War I get picked up all over. You'll find a passel of links in the podcast notes. And that brings us to The Buzz, the centennial of World War I this week in social media with Catherine Akey. Hi, Catherine. Hi, Teo. The Smithsonian Channel is airing a new documentary, Americans Underground, about the tunnels and dugouts that became home to American soldiers during World War I. To escape the horrors of trench warfare, thousands of soldiers found solace in these underground cities and left behind inscriptions and relief sculptures in the walls and ceilings. Names and regimental details, hometowns, eagles, and naked women feature prominently in the art left behind by the Doughboys. Friend of the Commission and National Geographic photographer Dr. Jeff Gusky has been photographing and exploring these subterranean galleries for years. What is especially great, as we noted in the Facebook post sharing this story, is that the Smithsonian Channel is streaming episodes of this documentary for free for a limited time on their website. So even if you don't have the Smithsonian Channel, you can follow the link in the podcast notes to watch this documentary while it's still up online. We're going to close out this week with a bit of technological history. We posted an article this week on Facebook about gas. Gas had been pretty much the most terrifying element of the battlefield since its first use in 1914, and gas warfare continued to develop and change alongside the other technological advancements of the war. Tear gas and chlorine gas debuted in 1914, and soon gas masks were developed that could protect soldiers against them. To get around those masks, 
new gases were developed. So new masks were developed in response to the new gas and so on and so on until we get to July 1917, a hundred years ago this month, when mustard gas was first used on the eve of the beginning of the third battle of Ypres. The shells for mustard gas were marked with a distinctive yellow cross, and soon they and the horrific wounds they inflicted became one of the most feared weapons of the entire war. But calling these weapons gases is actually a bit of a misnomer. In fact, they were really powders that were blasted into the air when the shell burst. This powder covered the muddy battlefields, coating the surface of any still water and shell holes, and making direct skin exposure to these surfaces painful and blistering. The technology and engineering behind this new terror is quite fascinating, so you should check out the link in the notes to the article by historian Simon Jones that we posted this week to learn more about it. Thank you, Catherine. We also want to let you know that as we announce each week's podcast, we post the announcement on our Facebook page, which is at facebook.com slash ww1centennial. We're discovering that this is a great place for our listeners to comment and discuss the stories. Now, we monitor this post and try to answer your questions, add insights, and chat with you. Check it out this Friday and over the weekend. We'll be there with you. And that's it for World War I Centennial News this week. Thank you for listening. We want to thank our guests, Jan Lory, historian and former director of the Polish Museum of America, speaking with us about the Polish-American experience during World War I. Mike Schuster from the Great War Project blog and his post about women and their varied wartime roles in the UK. Richard Rubin and Jonathan Bratton and their storyteller and historian segment on Americans in Europe prior to the U.S. declaration of war. Lisa Whittlesey, director of the International Junior Master Gardener Program, telling us about their collaboration with our Poppy Program. Catherine Akey, the commission's social media director and also the line producer for the show. And I'm Teo Mayer, your host. We want to thank the Pritzker Military Museum and Library, our founding sponsor. We put a link to their website about World War I in the podcast notes. This podcast can be found on our website at www.cc.org cn, on iTunes, Google Play, and TuneIn. Search for WW1 Centennial News. Our Twitter and Instagram handles are both at WW1CC and we're on Facebook at WW1Centennial. Thanks for joining us again this week. And don't forget to share the stories that you're hearing here about the war that changed the world. So long. Thank you.